Good morning, everybody. So Acts chapter 26, we're going to read the first 23 verses. And Paul finds himself uh, speaking in front of King Agrippa, as well as a, a wide audience. So from 26, verse 1. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up, stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and testify to small and great alike. 
I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Thank you so much. And uh, again, good morning to you, and it's great to be here at Bishop Hannington. This has actually been some time coming, I think, because I remember being invited to come uh, quite some time ago, and then COVID interrupted and all of that, and we had to rearrange dates at various points. But it's good to be here at last, and to be sharing with you in this mission month. It's wonderful. Uh, some churches have mission days, but uh, you have a whole mission month, and that's good. And I trust it is actually just part of a whole mission year. And uh, mission being our very reason for existence. Let's pray together as we turn to this passage. And please do keep it open in front of you. It would be very helpful to have that Acts 26 there in front of us. Let's pray. Father, thank you now for the reading of your word. Thank you for this amazing uh, event that it reveals to us. And we ask that you would speak to us now from it and help us to see what part we have to play in the story we've just read. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, now, we all know over this last uh, 18 months or so what it was like to be in lockdown. It was a word that came into the English language, in a sense, because of COVID. And certainly the initial one lasted for several months, at least two or three months we were in lockdown, uh, feeling like we were prisoners, some of us, in our own homes at the time. Well, here's the Apostle Paul, right? And he's been in lockdown now for at least two years, if not longer. He's a prisoner of the Roman Empire, no less, because of the accusations made against him by some of the leaders of his own Jewish people. But he's now being tried uh, for his life, essentially, before a Roman court, which, as you can see in the chapter, has been convened by both uh, Agrippa, who was a kind of puppet king, one of these little minor kings that the Roman Empire put in power, and Festus, who was the more powerful man, actually. He was the, the Roman governor of the whole province. So he's going to need, Paul is going to need, a pretty good defense before this court. And as you've read his speech in this chapter, we didn't go quite on to the very end of it, but in this speech he launches into a whole mixture of things. Uh, there's a bit of history, there's scriptures, there's quite a bit of weaving of theology together for the Jewish listeners. Uh, there's reference to prophecy. There's his own personal testimony. And there's even a bit of attempted evangelism of the Roman authorities. So it's no wonder that uh, at the point where our reading ended, Festus actually interrupts and says, you're mad, Paul. Well, he wasn't actually mad, but it may have sounded like that to a pagan Roman so let's look at his speech and just see something of the way it flows through. Because I want us to see first of three things. First of all, the way Paul refers to the past. And it's a past that is full of promise. That's there in verses 6 and 7. He says, it's because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors, meaning, of course, the Jewish ancestors, that I am on trial today. Paul insists, because he was a Jew and there were Jews who were present in the, in the court, that he'd always been a Jew. He'd always been a zealous, observant Jewish man. And his whole life from his childhood was built on what the God of Israel, the God of his people, had promised to his people. And that, he says, is what gives him hope. In fact, it's interesting that that word hope occurs three times in those verses, six and seven. 
he says, I'm here because of the hope that God promised our ancestors, that they 12 tribes were hoping to see fulfilled, and that it's because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. So what's he talking about? Well, of course, for any Jews who are present in the audience and for us who know the scriptures of Israel, our Bibles, what we call the Old Testament, we know that Paul is taking the thoughts of the people right back to the promises of God that went back as far as Abraham, to whom God had made enormous promises. In fact, you read the first one in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, where God called Abraham out of the land of Ur of the Chaldees and eventually brought him into the land of Canaan and said, I will bless you, I will make you a great nation, and through you all nations on earth will be blessed. And that promise of God to Abraham occurs four more times in Genesis alone. So it wasn't just some kind of afterthought. It's not as if God was saying to Abraham, no, look, you know, I'm going to give you a great people and you're going to go on this land and we're going to have a great time. And, oh, by the way, I might bless a few other people also. No, that bottom line of God's promise to Abraham that through you all nations on earth will be blessed. That is repeated again and again as if God said, look, I really mean this. This is what it's going to be. That's the promise of God that drives the whole story of what we now call the Old Testament, which for Paul in his day was not so old. It was simply the scriptures of his people. And it's what gives Paul hope, hope that was not disappointed. Because you look back through that story of Old Testament Israel and you find that again and again, God had kept his promise. He had saved that family of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob when they were almost extinct because of the famine and he'd saved them and brought them down to Egypt. Then hundreds of years later, he had rescued the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt when again they were in danger of state-sponsored genocide in that land. And then he had kept them safe for a whole generation in the wilderness uh, in that barren place. He led them through for a generation. Then he brought them into the land of Canaan. And then even after the judgment of the exile, which had happened 500 years earlier, he'd brought them back into their land, back from Babylon. And so in spite of all Israel's failings and persistent unfaithfulness, God had proved himself faithful to his promise. And that, you see, that past that is full of promise is what gave Paul hope that God would keep that promise and would go on keeping that promise, namely to bring blessing to all the nations of the earth. And that he would do that through this people, the people of Israel, whom he had created for himself. And that's the people of God in the Old and the New Testament. Now, Paul knew that the scriptures pointed in this direction, that there would come a time, and this is again from the Old Testament scriptures, when believing Jews and believing Gentiles, those who came from other nations, would become one redeemed people, one people under God. And the amazing thing is he'd now seen that starting to happen through his own ministry and his own work because of faith in Jesus of Nazareth. So Paul then begins his defense with this past history because it records what God had said, what God had done in faithfulness to his promise. So he knows that whatever happens to him at this moment and wherever his personal story goes, this story, the story of the God of promise is going to go on. It's going to go on because he has already planted churches in other parts of uh, of Asia Minor and elsewhere. So here's Paul. Here's a man on trial for his life 
who has hope because he knows the past. He knows the God of promise. And I wonder whether we could make the same claim. I'm going to be saying a little bit more about this in the evening service this evening. Not the five o'clock one, but the actual evening service here. So I'll not go too much further on this. But I just wonder, are we aware enough, as we should be, when we're thinking about world mission, that this is, this in a sense is part of a story which has been going on for a long time. Where have we come from? We're not just a bunch of people who happen to be sitting here on a Sunday morning doing a bit of religious stuff because, you know, that's what Christians like to do while we wait around until eventually Christ comes back and sorts it all out. No, what we're trying to say here is that who we are, our very identity as God's people, as a church, as part of this global worldwide church that we were referring to earlier, is all there because of what God promised to Abraham and what God has already done in the story of the Bible and what God is going on doing in the world today. So if we're going to have a sense of who we are and what we're here for, then we need to know our scriptures. We need to know our Bible. We need to not just think of the world out there and the world ahead, but think back to the God of promise, the past. That's what Paul does here. So on this World Mission Month and a World Mission Sunday, make sure that you're thinking about mission and you're planning and strategizing about mission is actually based on the Bible itself and the whole Bible story as it was for the Apostle Paul. So that's the first thing then. Paul points to the past, a past that was filled with promise and therefore with hope. And then he moves on in the bulk of his talk, of course, or his, it wasn't exactly a talk, it was a a defense before the court. In verses 9 to 20, he moves then into the present and a present that is filled with mission. Now, Paul, of course, as a faithful Jew, had always believed that those great scriptural promises of God that God had made to his people would one day be be fulfilled. But when he was Saul of Tarsus, he probably never imagined that he himself would one day play this lead role in fulfilling the very promises of God. The promises that he believed in from childhood, but now he has become part of that mission that is going to the world. But first of all, you notice how honest he is. He tells Agrippa and Festus, Uh, as he had done elsewhere as well, that before he ever got involved in this mission for Jesus, he had hated Jesus of Nazareth, hated him with visceral hatred. He regarded him as an imposter, as one who had been rightly crucified, as somebody who had been, apparently in his original thinking, leading his Jewish people astray. He, as a Pharisee, had believed that what you needed to do was that the Jewish people must be obeying the law and keeping the law of God and being pure and holy. And along comes this Jesus of Nazareth and seems to lead in some other direction and he's going to upset the whole purpose and promises of God. That's what he was thinking as a zealous Pharisee Jew, as Saul of of Tarsus. And so he persecuted not just all those who claimed who Jesus was, that the crucified Jesus of Nazareth was actually risen from the dead, but in a sense was persecuting Jesus himself as the one he hated, this dead and crucified would-be claimed Messiah, which of course he wasn't as far as Paul would have thought at that time. Risen from the dead? Nonsense. Impossible. 
Resurrection is only for the end of the age, not for now. The risen Jesus would have been absolute horrendous nonsense to Saul of Tarsus until he met him. And that's what he describes when he tells this story, this astonishing story of how the risen Lord Jesus Christ met Paul, spoke to Paul, addressed Paul, Saul, as he still was at that time, on the road to Damascus. And so his whole world, his whole life is now turned upside down. Or as he probably would have put it, the right way up. Because now he knew the truth about Jesus. And therefore the truth about how the God of Israel, the God he'd always believed in, was now keeping that promise precisely through Jesus of Nazareth and his resurrection. That's why, in some ways, it's, it's not quite accurate to talk about the conversion of the Apostle Paul. He wasn't converted from one religion to another religion. What happened was that he realized that the faith he had always had, the faith in the God of Israel, the faith of the scriptures, was now actually being fulfilled in Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. He becomes a fulfilled man, fulfilled by the scriptures. And now what does this mean for Paul? Well, that's where he says what, Paul, what God says to him. You see it there in verses 16 to 18 after he's been floored, as it were, by the bright light of the risen Jesus, and Jesus identified himself to him, then this is what Saul says. Now, just read this again. Jesus said to Saul, now get up, stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue from your own people and from the Gentiles and so on. We'll come to the later part in a moment. I've made you, says, God, says Jesus to Saul, a servant and a witness. Now, those are two very important words. And there's no doubt that Saul of Tarsus, who knew his scriptures as a Pharisee, would have known exactly where they came from and exactly what Jesus is referring to. Because that's precisely what God had said to Israel way back in the book of Isaiah. Let me read to you from Isaiah chapter 43. The context here in Isaiah 43 is where God, in a sense, is in another kind of court case between Yahweh, the God of Israel, and all the other gods of the nations. Uh, and there's this kind of conflict going on between who really is God. And so God says, lead out those who have eyes but are blind. All the nations, they gather together. All the people assemble. Which of their gods foretold these things, proclaim to us these things. Let them bring in their witnesses to prove that they were right, if they were. And then God says, this is the key piece, verse 18, Isaiah 43, verse 10, sorry, verse 10. You, you Israelites, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no other. I am the one who is revealed and saved and proclaimed, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. And so being a servant and being a witness together was, in a sense, Israel's responsibility to the world. God says, I've made you a light to the nations, that through you as my people, the truth about who the living God is will go to the nations, to the ends of the earth, it says in one other part of these same chapters. And so here is Jesus saying to Saul of Tarsus, you are now to be the one, in a sense, the initial one, the first one. You are to be the one who will become like Israel. 
you will be my Israel to the nations, my witness, my servant, the one through whom all these scriptural promises of God's blessing to the nations will begin to happen, begin to come true. And that's why, of course, the Apostle Paul constantly describes himself as the Apostle to the Gentiles, to the nations. He knew that God had sent him specifically outside the realm of the Jewish people to the wild peoples of Turkey and Galatia uh, and across into the great metropolis of Ephesus and then eventually into Europe, bringing the gospel to our continent in Europe, to Philippi and then to Corinth and to Athens and eventually, of course, to Rome itself. So here is Jesus saying to the Apostle Paul, this now is to be your work, that you'll be the one through whom I, God, Jesus, am going to begin to keep my promise to Abraham of bringing blessing to all the nations, Gentiles as well as Jews. Now, why did God need Paul to be doing that? Not only that he would bring the knowledge of God to the nations of his day, but that the mission would continue right on through to today to be servants and witnesses of the living God. Well, look what Paul, what, what Jesus says in verse 18, where we read this, that the reason I'm sending you to them is to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. See, what's being described there is to say, look, people all over the world need to come from darkness to light. They need to come from the realm of Satan to God. They need to have their sin problem dealt with and to come to forgiveness. And they need to come from exclusion to being included within the very people of God. Those are the great truths of our human condition, that without Christ, We are in darkness, in the realm of evil, in our sin, and excluded from salvation. But that through Christ, we can come to light and to God and to forgiveness and to be part of his people. And that is the transforming power of the gospel. And that's what Jesus lays upon Saul of Tarsus. What a task. What a world task. What a history-filling task. And so Paul says, Agrippa, Festus. That's what I've been doing. That's what Jesus sent me to do. And he says, and this is where he gets a little bit ironic and quite clever. He says, I'm not doing anything other than what the scriptures have said. This, in a sense, is his coup de grace. He says that this is exactly what is there in the scriptures. You see what he says in verse 22? He says, I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. The prophets and Moses, of course, is a way of referring to the whole of the Old Testament scriptures, the Torah, the law, and the prophets. And he says, nothing, that, that's what they said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer, and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles, to the nations, which is what the scriptures say. And what's interesting there is how closely Luke is recording the words of Paul there as virtually echoing the words of Jesus himself to the disciples on the day of resurrection in Luke chapter 24. You remember that first day of resurrection when Jesus, the risen Jesus, spent the whole afternoon and then the whole evening giving two great lectures uh, on the Old Testament scriptures opening the eyes of the the Emmaus too on the way to Emmaus, and then opening the eyes of the disciples later on in the evening. And Jesus said to them, 
This is what I told you while I was with you, that everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. That is the whole of the scriptures. And he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. And he told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. The same language, the same term. And so Paul, in that sense, he says, all I'm doing is doing what the scriptures said must be done. That is, that the good news of the living God of Israel and his salvation must go now beyond the Jewish people to all the nations of the earth, bringing them repentance and forgiveness and the blessing of salvation. In other words, mission. And so Paul says that's the past filled with God's promise. And now he's engaged in a present that is filled with mission for all Christian believers. And again, the challenge comes to us. You might say, well, that... That was all well, all very well for Paul. He was an apostle. He was a missionary. I'm just an ordinary Christian. Well, no, we're never such a thing as an ordinary Christian. We are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, who before he left us said, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. So go and make disciples of all nations. This universal thrust of the church to the ends of the earth is something for all of us to be playing our part in. To be living within God's story. The story of the Bible. The story that goes on today to the ends of the earth. And it's a great joy to know that here at Bishop Hannington you do see that as part of your missional responsibility. As a community of God's people. To be sharing that good news. And to be engaging in God's mission. And participating with those who are carrying it to the ends of the earth. So that then is looking to the past. A past that was filled with promise and a present which was filled with mission and that goes on. But Paul also looks to a future that is filled with hope. And we come back to that word again. Where is all this going? What is the, is there any guarantee? Is there any real hope that this ultimately will succeed? Well, look at what Paul says in verse 8 and verse 23. Paul says that in verse, in verse, let me get back to my passage. He says in verse 8, Why should any of one of you consider that it is incredible that God raises the dead? That's verse 8. And then in verse 23, he says that the Messiah should suffer and is the first to rise from the dead. Paul has said that his whole life has been based upon the hope of Israel. And now he, in a sense, metamorphoses that hope of Israel into this language of resurrection it's in the resurrection of the messiah jesus that he sees the fulfillment of god's promises being fulfilled and that is what guarantees the future and he also says in verse 8 why should this seem incredible because for jews like agrippa was and for the other jews who were there this was part of their faith that god could raise the dead I mean, there are several stories in the Old Testament of God raising those who had died through uh, the miracles of Elijah and Elisha and so on. And for Jews of that time, people like Agrippa and others, they also believed that there would be a resurrection. The Pharisees believed that very strongly. The Sadducees didn't. They had arguments about it, but the Pharisees did, so Paul would have. And can you see where it says there in chapter 24... 
verses 14 to 16, if you've got your Bible still open, Paul says, I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect, and I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and the prophets, and I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that is his accusers, that is, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So they believed in resurrection. The only thing is, it was resurrection at the end of time, the last day. Do you remember when uh, Jesus came to Mary and Martha after Lazarus had died? And he says to Martha, your brother will rise again. And she says, yeah, Lord, I know that. I know he will rise again on the last day, but that's a long time to wait. And if you had come a bit quicker, he wouldn't have had to die anyway in the first place. So Martha believes in resurrection, but she thinks it's only something for the long distant future. That's why it's surprising when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and life. Whoever believes in me will never die. And and living, believing in me will never die. And so Jesus becomes, in a sense, in his resurrection, he becomes the guarantee of the end of history now having entered in. That's why Paul could say here that Jesus is the first to rise from the dead. He is the first fruits. The resurrection of Jesus guarantees the new creation, the new order, the new world in which we will be like him. He's the first fruits. He's the one who led the way. That's why the bodily resurrection of Jesus is so important. That's why the, 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 the early apostles in the book of Acts, they didn't go out into Jerusalem saying, you know what, you killed Jesus, but that's okay, because he still lives in our hearts. You know, if they'd just been saying he lives on in our memory or he lives on in our hearts, the Roman and Jewish authorities said, well, that's okay. We don't mind Jesus living on in your hearts, just so long as he's really dead. No, they say, we have seen him raised. We've touched him. We've spoken of him, eaten with him. We know that Jesus is raised from the dead, and so should we. And that's the biblical hope of our new creation. And what that does, you see, is it transforms all our efforts in mission into something of which the ending is guaranteed. It's not as if God is sitting up there in heaven, as it were, waiting for us to finish the job. You know, God says, oh, when are they going to do it? You know, if only they would. It's not that God is dependent upon us. It is that God has already guaranteed that future of a new creation in which people from every tribe and language and nation will come to worship the living God as he promised to Abraham. And God says that will happen. And here's the proof and the guarantee. This Jesus whom you crucified, God has raised him from the dead and we are witnesses of this. So Paul's emphasis here on the resurrection is also part of the driving force of his mission. Because of what he knew God had promised in the past and what God was manifestly accomplishing in his life in the present and what God had promised to do in the future and guaranteed through the resurrection of Jesus that Paul could believe this mission will go on. This is a story which isn't coming to an end. And that's how we should be thinking today as well. So let me conclude then on this mission month and mission Sunday. Let's follow the Apostle Paul, shall we? Let's make sure that we are seeing the roots of our mission in God's great promises in the Scripture, and especially in the Old Testament Scriptures. Know your Bible if you want to really be enthusiastic for mission. And secondly, let's make sure that we've been seizing the present challenge of being engaged in God's mission in the world in whatever he calls us to in our own generation. 
that we also are God's servants and God's witnesses in the world. And that's what we are called to be. And then let's do that, looking to a future that is filled with hope, that the God is working out all things according to his purpose, to bring all things in heaven and on earth into that reconciled unity that he has accomplished through the blood of Christ and guaranteed through his resurrection. You see, Paul was in chains as he made this speech, but he knew that God's mission and God's word were not in chains and that whatever would happen to him, that mission would go on. And that is true also for us today. So let's engage in that with God's encouragement and let's do so together. Let's pray. And then I'll hand back to Chris for our longer prayers. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the encouragement that it brings us like the Apostle Paul, to know that your word will go forth. Your mission will succeed. We just ask that you will give us the humility and the perseverance and the determination to be co-workers with God and to participate in whatever you give us to do. For Jesus' sake. Amen.